Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Well, Happy New Year, first Sunday of 2024. If you had the worst 2023, I'm here to tell you you can leave it in 2023. We start in a new year, a new year, a new year. I want to encourage all of you, memories of intimacy are not real intimacy. God wants to meet you again this year. He wants fresh encounters. He wants, he wants a, a fresh breath on your life. So, so uh, get ready, get ready, get ready. Um, I'm titled my message today, What's Wrong, What's Wrong? Turn to him and say, what's wrong? We're going to go 2,600 years ago to the book of Jeremiah. And the people of God were asking the same question to God. What is wrong? What is wrong with our society? What's wrong with mankind? What's going on? Everything is breaking down. Our minds are breaking down. Our families are breaking down. Society is breaking down. God, what is wrong with society? And God gives them a simple answer. The root problem of everything that's broken down is sin. He shows them the anatomy of sin, the nature of sin, the cost of sin. And throughout the Bible, uh, throughout the book of Jeremiah, excuse me, uh, this prophet in, in 600 B.C., you'll see a, a theme of the word backsliding. Backsliding, if I could use a modern term, it would be like driving on the wrong road, going the wrong direction. And so over and over again, Jeremiah the prophet is preaching literally sermons from God saying, you're going the wrong direction. But God is so kind, he doesn't just say you're going the wrong direction. He creates an off-ramp. The word is repentance throughout the book of Jeremiah. He's saying, get off this off-ramp. You're going towards death. There is an off-ramp towards life. Take the off-ramp. I would like to tell you that the people of Jeremiah listened to the off-ramp. But over and over again, their stubborn hearts, they literally just kept going towards captivity. Today, though, today, though, we're going to take the off-ramp. Amen? We're going to say yes to life. Let's go to Jeremiah 2. We're going to look at um, a message from God to his people. This is a sermon from God. Uh, Come on now. Now, I'm going to let you know it's a lot of reading. So if you didn't read your Bible this week, you're going to make up for it right at this moment, okay? You're going to get all your Bible reading in. You're going to feel really good about yourself. You're like, what would you read this week? Jeremiah 2. Okay, here we go. Uh, this is what the Lord says. Hear the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 2. Here we go. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through, your, uh, through the wilderness, uh, through a, a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Another translation said that they worshiped worthless idols and therefore lost their worth. Can I tell you something? When you worship the wrong things, it will attack your worth. If you worship your career, you'll never actually have a constant worth and you'll struggle with your worth. If you worship a person or a marriage, you'll struggle with your worth. If you worship your kids, they're great. Your kids are amazing. Um, But if you worship your kids, you'll always struggle with your worth because every idol leaves you empty. When you make a good thing an ultimate thing and make it an idol, it will make you be, uh, become a worthless person. You'll feel that way at least. That's what it's trying to show you. Um, that's why worship's so important. Uh, bonus content, back to the word. Okay. Uh, they did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruits and reach produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord, and I bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look and observe closely. 
See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they're not gods at all? But my people exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares, uh, uh, great horror, uh, declares the Lord. Uh, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold uh, water. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then. Everybody say consider. Be a big part. Consider, consider, consider. Consider then and rely, realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God. And have no awe of me, declares the Lord, uh, the Lord Almighty. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve uh, you indeed on every high hill and every underspreading tree. And you lay down as a prostitute. I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Everybody doing good? Okay, we're almost done. Okay, 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 okay. Back to it. All right, here we go. Um, verse 22. We only got a couple of verses. Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not run after Baal. See how you've behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Who can restrain her? Any male that pursues her, uh, her need, not tire themselves at mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it is no use. I love my foreign gods. I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the people of Israel are disgraced. They are their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets. They say to wood, you are my father. They say to the stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their face. Uh, when uh, they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. When they, uh, when then, uh, are there, where then are their gods you made for yourselves? Let them come and save you. When you're in trouble, for Judah, uh, have as many gods as you, as you have towns. Why do you bring these charges against me? You have rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punish your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like ravenous lions. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. And this is an interesting way he finishes it. Does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Stop. That last verse, I just want to encourage you. What it's saying is church is important. Quiet time is important. Small group is important. He's given a picture of the Israelites uh, that they don't know where to be anymore and they don't know who to be with. I've done 60, 70 plus weddings. And when I'm standing there with the groom, each time the door opens, each time the bride is presented, I have not once seen the bride go, oh my gosh, I forgot my wedding dress. I'm still in my uh, Lululemon, my athleisure wear. I'll be right, I, I totally forgot this was my wedding day. I'll be, I'll be right back, I'll be right back. Like that's never happened. A bride knows where to be. She's got her dress prepared. She puts on her best. She gets her hair did, her makeup did, all the best jewelry on because she knows this is a day for her that's going to change her life forever. And what he's saying is a bride knows where she's supposed to be, but my people don't know where they're supposed to be. A bride knows who she's supposed to be with, but my people don't know who they're supposed to be with. And what the Lord is saying to us today is some of you, you don't know where you're supposed to be. Sunday, you're supposed to be in church. In the morning, you're supposed to be hanging out with your God. You're supposed to be in community with people saying, Christians know where they're supposed to be and who they're supposed to be in love with. But the world, they're confused by that. He's saying, you're a bride who's forgotten to come to the wedding. You're a bride that knows that you have great things to put on. Well, today I'm here to remind you that there is a God that is pursuing you. If you're a guy in the house, you're like, what, I'm a bride? Relax, it's an illustration, okay? 
God uses it as a picture and illustration. He uses flock, family, and marriage because what other relationship affects you more than a marriage for good or for bad? And when you say yes to Jesus, it's the best thing you could ever say yes to. Are you ready for the message? Bow your heads, I'm gonna pray. We can get after it today. God, we love you. Oh, we give you everything. We give you everything. We give you everything. Oh, Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would wake up sleepy Christians this morning, the apathetic, the half-hearted ones. God, we pray that, we're, that, that today is the day that things change, that we're going two feet in. We're going all in. Lord, I come against distraction and tiredness. Lord, you have a word for us today. May our ears be ready to hear. May our soil be soft because the word of God can do great things when we got soft soil. So God, may my words fall to the floor and may your words soar. God, we need you, we need you. Everybody said? Amen. We're gonna have three questions today, three questions today from this text. What is sin? Why is it so dangerous? And what's the problem? What's the problem? First one, what is sin? What is sin? I'm gonna use a simple illustration. A man went to a doctor and told the doctor, every time... I touch right here, it hurts, ow. Right here, ow, right here, ow. And over and over again, everywhere you touch, ow, 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 everywhere, just pain, pain, pain. Everywhere you touch, pain, pain. Doctor said, okay, stop doing that. Um, we're going to check you out and see what it is. X-ray, MRI comes back. Doctor says, we found out what the problem is. You have a broken finger. Okay. If you're invited, somebody, hey, you gotta come to church. My pastor's funny. That's good. Ah! Like, that's the jokes he shares. It's probably one of my worst, cheesiest jokes ever if you're brand new, but it's needed for the illustration, okay? All right? All right. Uh, we're gonna get to the, we're gonna become the church that we do the knee snap. Ah! Okay, miss. Um, so, uh, Dr. Comdack, you have a broken finger. Now, let me define sin to you because it's very similar to that scenario. Is you have been misdiagnosed by the world. You, uh, things are breaking down for you and you don't know why they're breaking down. And so you're guessing and you come to the great healer and he's going to give you the answer of why everything hurts, why everything's breaking. Dorothy Sayers, I think said it best. She's a um, famous author from the early 1900s, a believer. She said, sin can be defined as a deep interior dislocation of the soul. Sin is a dislocation of the soul. The soul should be centered on God. So when your soul gets dislocated from God, and it gets uh, centered on something else in your life, centered on a career, a hobby, centered on yourself, centered on greed, centered on lust, centered on your kids. What happens is as your soul is um, you know, um, uh, dislocated, it starts to create pain. So everything else you touch, ow, ow, ow. Why is everything breaking down around me? Why is my mind breaking down? Why is my marriage breaking down? Why is my career not as fulfilling as I thought it would be? Because you have been dislocated from your Savior. And the diagnoser, the healer says, this is what sin is. Is you have taken your soul and plugged it into something else instead of the one thing that will give you life. I'm here to encourage you, plug into life today. So that's what sin is. That's the definite, the, the, the Greek word of sin means to miss the mark. A.K.A. you put your soul in the wrong mark. Now, now why is sin so dangerous? Let's talk about that. The first one's done. We're done with that. We're moving on now, okay? Uh, why is sin so dangerous? Here's why it's so dangerous. It's fun. <laughs> sin is fun. Turn to your neighbor and say, sin is fun. Hey, what are you doing right now? Do you think you're going to do that at church today? Bible says it's fun for a season. You want to know why sin is such a problem? It says that sin is pleasurable for a season. That it brings pleasure for a season. It says it's fun for a season, pleasurable for a season, but then it leads to distraction. It leads to destruction. It leads to death. Sin is the ultimate catfish ever in history. <laughs> ultimate catfish. Sin presents itself like Brad Pitt. It's like, hey, how can I be bad? 
Look at this jawline. Look at these eyes that are smoldering, you know? I mean, Brad Pitt, one of the, one of the most gorgeous men ever on the planet. This, this, this is what sin looks like. It looks like one of the greatest decisions on the planet. But you hang out with sin long enough, you find out sin actually looks like this. Pennywise. Boom, you went catfished. Online, talking to sin, thinking sin's all good, and then sin shows up. You're like, this is actually what sin is? And this is why when I was a youth pastor, it was so frustrating. Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, do not forget your creator and start living for the world because at the end of your days, you'll say life is pleasant no more. Because in your youth, you start creating these rhythms of saying, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's hurting me. It doesn't feel like it's destroying me. Right now, it's still fun and pleasurable. The, the problem with sin, and this is the problem with the deception of sin, is that when you're on the wrong path and you're driving down the wrong road, eventually that road has a cliff. But none of us know when the cliff is. None of us knows when that day when sin starts to go from fun to death, pleasure to bondage, pleasure to breaking my mind down, pleasure to why do I feel so terrible all the time, pleasure to why is everything falling down. We don't know when that moment is. And that's why God is saying, hey, take the off ramp because the cliff is coming. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, maybe not next month, but if you keep living this life, it will destroy everything you hold dear. Take the off ramp of repentance. This is why sin is so dangerous. The Bible shows us sin as a predator. It likes to hide. Let me show it to you real quick. Sin, uh, sin likes to hide. Sin likes to hide. Genesis 2, it's one of the first um, times we see sin in the Bible um, described by God. And he describes it as a predator, as a predator that likes to hide. He's talking to Cain uh, when Cain is living a life of sin, a life of disobedience. Here's what he says to Cain. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. And that word crouching in the Hebrew would be like a leopard or a tiger that, are trying, that is trying to stalk its prey. If you ever watch National Geographic, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get really, really small and look not really scary. And they try to hide behind things. And then they come really slowly on its prey. And this little leopard that looks little in the thing, the, the, the prey doesn't see the predator and the closer the predator gets to the prey, this is when you know eventually it's going to die. And what it's saying about sin is that sin likes to crouch into a little ball and present itself as a little thing. It's just a little thing. It's just a little bit of lust. It's just a little bit of lust. But if you allow sin to actually expose itself for what it is, lust is not just lust. Lust fully grown is full-blown adultery. Lust wants to be fully grown into adultery. The lust in pornography wants to turn into a real relation with somebody else, sleeping with somebody else. That's what lust wants to become to destroy you. What, what is anger? Anger goes this little ball. Oh, it's just a little bit of anger. It's a little bit of anger. But as it gets closer and closer to you, it shows itself. Anger becomes full-blown murder. And murder, you say, I would never do that. Let me, let me have you talk about somebody you don't like. You'll murder their character and you'll destroy them in two seconds sometimes. What is greed? Oh, greed's just a little bit of greed. It's nothing that bad. It's just right there. No, greed fully born is, I want to be my own God. And so sin tries to stalk you and tries to sneak up on you. And so God is like this, this amazing uh, God who's saying, hey, watch out. The predator's right there. You're right here. Get away from it. You must flee from it because it's crouching right outside your door, right outside your life. Can you imagine watching like National Geographic and, and you know, the, the commentator's like, right now there's two zebras and, and there's two lions and the law. And this is such a bad accent. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't care. I'm committed to it. Watch, watch the wildebeest uh, go across the plain. And so the wildebeest across the plain, 
And they're like, watch the leopard stalk the wildebeest, you know, and you're watching it. And could you imagine in the middle of that, some guy like, I just run in the middle of the thing like, hey, wildebeest, run, there's a lion. And over and over again, this lion is like in this like Serengeti and it's been like two months and this lion's like, time out. You're ruining my prey time. I want to destroy them, but you keep on coming up and telling them that I'm actually gonna destroy them. Can you just shut up so I can prey on them? And this is what culture's done. Culture's like, you don't have to worry about it. Get next to it. But I'm here to scream. Sin is a predator that wants to destroy you. It's time to flee. It's time to shut the door. It's time to kick it out. Sin is not something to be messed with. So sin hides, sin hides. Second thing does, sin controls, sin controls, sin controls. I, um, uh, you know, got to live in LA uh, for a good amount of my life um, in my my 20s. and, you know, lived in the movie industry area. Rachel worked in the movie industry. Had a lot of um, actors, acting coaches, agents go to our church. And I learned a good amount about the in- industry. And it's, it's, it's dark. It is. Just, it's, it's a dark. It's it, it, like, like anything that doesn't have the Lord. It's, it's dark. And one of the things I learned was different acting styles in the industry. And we had acting coaches that were famous acting coaches. You know, Jim Caviezel's acting coach went to our church. And a couple other famous acting coaches. And... Um, uh, they told me they were really against this one method. I didn't really understand what they said. Like, oh, I would never do method acting. And I remember one of them telling me like, yeah, yeah, method acting, basically you become the person and you do this enough. You don't even remember who you are anymore. And one of the, 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 the Jimmy Caviezel, the acting coach, uh, John Kirby is his name. He told me after church one day, he goes, he goes, watch um, Robin Williams get interviewed and you'll see him going to like three different people because he doesn't know where he ends and where his characters begin. And, and method acting will literally divide your, your mind. So he goes, I don't believe in method acting, but it's very popular in Hollywood. It's getting more popular. Well, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, stars in this movie called The Aviator, Howard Hughes, a famous story about Howard Hughes. And he hires an acting coach, Leonard Moss, very famous in the industry. And his main method is method acting. And he basically teaches Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, and it's the first time Leo's ever had acting lessons is, is Aviator. He says, no longer will you just act like Howard Hughes, you are Howard Hughes. I want you to pick up everything he has, all his bad things, good things, his OCD when he washes his hands, the way he talks, his mannerisms, his face. I want you to be, you are no longer Leo. You are now Howard Hughes. Well, Leo fully gives himself to this, that on the movie set that they had to hire a therapist for when he is done with a scene for the therapist to talk him out of uh, being Howard Hughes. Like he would go to wash his hands and he would get so OCD, he would never leave the sink. And the therapist would say, hey, no, stop it. You are not Howard Hughes. You are Leonardo DiCaprio. That is what Howard Hughes would do. That's not what Leo would do. Stop that. You are no longer Howard. You are Leo. And the therapist would have to walk him out of being Howard Hughes. What sin does to you, he says, watch out. It will master you. Because when you think you're done with sin, sin isn't done with you. It gnaws at you. It starts to master you and says, no, I'm going to make you a method actor. You're, the sin that you're doing, you're going to eventually become. And so you start becoming the sin of what you do. You start, you start became somebody who was just dabbling in greed. Then you just become a greedy person. You start dabbling in anger. Then you just become an angry person. You become the sin that you dabble in. And what, what the Holy Spirit wants to do is say, hey, hey, that's not who you are. You're no longer a sinner. You are a saint. That is not your nature. That's your old sinful nature. Here is your new nature. Sin wants to make you a method actor and just wants to free you from something you were never supposed to be. Let me, let me show you how these sins would manifest. And let, let's, let's, let's pull the mask back on them. Let's, let, let, let's rip the mask off of sin. One of those sins simply is this, is the sin of religion. The sin of religion. It makes you a method actor. George McDonald said this, half of the misery in the world 
comes from trying to look a certain way instead of trying to be who they really are. That name that Jesus gave this practice is hypocrisy, which simply means wearing a mask, playing the actor, being a method actor. We must not think that failure to reach our ideals is hypocrisy because no believer lives up to all he or she knows or has for the Lord. Hypocrisy is a deliberate deception trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. Uh, I love how William Barclay showed it in his commentary. He said this about Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, was a disfigured man with a lot of warts on his face. The painter, thinking to please the great man, omitted, and dis- uh, omitted the disfiguring warts. So his face had all these warts, painted him perfect. Brad Pitt, if you will. Okay. Um, when Cromwell saw the picture, he said, take it away and paint me with warts and all. It is one of the greatest virtues of the Bible that it shows our heroes warts and all. I wrote down this little quote for you. This, the sin of religion, one of the, the, the imposters that makes us method actors is the sin of religion tricks you into thinking that you need to bring your strength to God. I'm gonna bring my strength. Look how strong I am, God. Look how great I am, God. Look how righteous I am, God. That's the sin of religion. But can I tell you real quick, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough. He asks for your weakness today. Bring your weakness to him. Bring your warts, bring your shame, bring your sin, bring your addiction, bring your pride, bring your worst and let his grace that is more than sufficient rest on you today. Let, let, let's look at this picture real quick. Can you imagine if we had a trillionaire going to our church and one of their lifelong callings he just felt like was, I'm called to help people get out of financial debt. Anybody who shares their story with me and ask for my help, I write them a check and they are debt free. Who wants that person in our church, amen? Let's pray them in right now, come on now. And so every service they sit in the front left side, let's say that, and people find out, the word gets out. And people come up to them and say, hey, this is my story. Would you, would you take care of my debt? And gladly writes the check and just says, you are now debt free. But can you imagine people actually, how crazy it would be if somebody came to church, they sat in the back and uh, they were ashamed of their debt. They didn't want to share that they had a shopping addiction and uh, their credit cards were all just you know, spiked because of online shopping and Lululemon and, and all the other things. They, they love Ray-Bans, so they buy Ray-Bans every day. So they're really embarrassed about their shopping addiction. So they, they present that they look good. They're wearing all nice stuff every Sunday and they sit in the back and they have that debt. And week after week, their debt just gets higher and higher. And all they have to do is come to the person and just simply say, I have a problem. I was a shopping addict. Would you take care of my debt? But the problem is, is they put on religion and they walk in with debt and they walk out with debt. Can you imagine somebody being sick and having a sickness and being so ashamed of their sickness that a doctor's in the house and they won't tell the doctor what's wrong. Instead, they hide the cough and they mask it with some kind of medicine instead of being healed at a service. Ooh, religion sucks. It steals from you. So many of you are so worried about what people think that you are sacrificing your health for it. You're sacrificing your peace for it. You're sacrificing your spiritual well-being for it. You put on this mask, you cover the warts instead of coming to church saying, God, I need you. Would you pray for me? I'm addicted to this sin. I've got this shame. I've got this wound. I don't want it anymore. That's what church is for. I I wanna read you this thought real quick that that one of my uh, theologians said. It's the sin of self. It's the sin of self. Daniel Defoe uh, called pride the first peer and president of hell. Indeed, it was pride that transformed Lucifer to Satan. And it was pride that caused our first parents to sin in Genesis 3. 
Pride opens the door to every other sin. For once we, were, uh, for once, uh, we are more concerned with our reputation than our character, there is no end to the things we will do just to make ourselves look good before others. Pride will make you sacrifice health so people think you're fine. I'm not okay. You're not okay. He loves us anyway. It rhymes, it's cheesy, but it's true. I want to encourage you today. Bring your warts to God. Bring your weakness to God. Bring your sin to God and see what he does with it. So sin tries to control you. Next thing sin tries to do is sin makes you stink. Sin smells. It's got a stench to it. Let me, let me read you a verse, Ephesians 4. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. That, that he, uh, Greek word of throw off is literally a Greek word about taking clothes and throwing them out. It's like these, 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 are, these are nasty. I've been wearing it for 10 straight years. Uh, I've got all the use out. It's so gross. I need to throw. You don't put it back in the closet and say, no, you need to throw it out. So it says, throw off your old sinful nature in the way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature. Put on your new nature. Come on, I'm taking you spiritually shopping today. You're getting some new clothes today. Come on now. You're getting some new, new, new high-end clothes. Come on now. Uh, spotless kind of clothes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. It's a picture of saying, you know that old nature, those old rhythms you had, those old proclivities, those old addictions? You don't take them and you put them within arm's reach so you can grab them again. He's saying you take them and you chuck them out of your life. You throw them out of your life because it stinks. Let me, let me, let me tell you, like, let's talk about this real quick. Self-righteousness, the sin of self-righteousness. Can I tell you all the religious people in the room and self-righteous people, are you listening? You're self-righteous, it stinks! It's nasty. You walk into the room with your self-righteousness and that aroma permeates and it ruins the room. I've seen it in Bible studies. I've seen it in churches. The self-righteous person comes in. Nobody else wants to talk anymore. Oh, I might say something wrong uh, that they think, of, well, actually, uh, you're saying that incorrectly. And, uh, duh, duh, oh, you, you watched that movie? Oh, you're, uh, seven curses on your family. Uh, oh, you know, like all these things. Like they bring this self-righteousness that my way is the way. And they just stink up the room and then the room loses its vulnerability. The room loses its way to go on a journey because self-righteousness is, is this arrogance. It's this stench that everybody can smell except you. Right. Have you ever been around that person? Yes. Like you're like around that person, like the, the person that smells, but they don't know they smell. Yeah. Like everybody's like, how do they not smell themselves right now? <laughs> like when I was in high school, I remember my senior year, we had a guarantee he stank so bad. Oh, he stunk so bad. And so me and my buddy Isaac, we'd play rock, paper, scissors on who had to guard him because nobody wanted to guard him. And in high school, you know, you don't tell the guys, he's like, I, I didn't tell him, so the whole, you're like, oh, oh, you know, he smelled. Well, as I got older, I would have days where I smelled. Uh, I remember like when I even first get married, I'd come home and get down golfing and Rachel give me out, she's like, oh, you stink. I'm like, I, I don't smell it. She's like, yeah, you smell like golf court, you smell bad, like, like you need to shower and change. And I was like, oh, wow, that, that's what that feels like. Okay, okay, okay. And then I have other friends, like, you know, you talking like, oh, yeah, your breath, it's, 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 a little, it's got a little uh to it, you know what I'm saying? And so, so. Hey, you know, here's some gum. And I realized those are my real friends. My real, the real friends that tell you that your breasts stink, that, 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 you, that you smell a little funky. Can I be your real friend today? Your sin stinks. Your, your religion stinks. Your self-righteousness stinks. Hey, uh, the bitter people in the room, the negative ones, ooh, it stinks. You come into a room and you're like, oh, did you see what happened yesterday? Oh, look what's happened politically. Oh, look what happened yesterday. Oh, da -da. and all you do is you share bad news and bad thing after another. Your bitterness stinks up the room. Can I talk to the selfish spouse today? Maybe your spouse hasn't told you this yet, but your selfishness is stinking your marriage up. 
It's just, oh, it's just, it's bringing this terrible stench in the room. And your spouse is trying to figure out how do I, can I put some cologne on it? Can I spray some, can I spray some like, 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 like forgiveness over it? But the reality is, is you got to steward your own spirit too. And you got to throw that selfishness out today. Your selfishness stinks. To the angry person in the room, your anger stinks. Nobody likes being around an angry person. It's like walking on eggshells. Get rid, you can get rid, I'm telling you, you can get rid of your anger. This is not just who you are, okay? All these personality tests, I'm an ESTJ, I'm this Enneagram, I'm a J-E-R-K, jerk, just who I am, God created me that way. Like, like, literally like, oh, I took my test, I'm a jerk, sorry, can't change. No, 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 God can change you. He can change you, he can transform you. <laughs> so, sorry. I had to keep a straight face the whole way, I was like, oh, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna do J-E-R-K jokes, it be hilarious. Um, Anybody, anybody slap their knee? Did anybody slap their knee? Anybody? Uh, next time. All right, this is a big deal. Um, I want to encourage you real quick. If you, you're like, yeah, I am kind of self-righteous. A little bit. No, no, you're a lot bit then probably. Your nose is so gracious to yourself. So gracious. The way you see yourself, you're so gracious a lot of time. The, to the one that has to just think they have a whiff of self-righteousness, you're really self-righteous. So the you think, I, I might be a little selfish. Trust me, you're a lot selfish. I, I'm just a little complaining. No, you're a lot complaining. Get rid of it, throw it out, and put on your new nature. Does that sound good? Amen? So sin will make you stink. Now, now let's, uh, let's look at the next one. So that's why uh, sin is so, so dangerous, because it's so deceptive. You don't smell it. You don't see it. You don't see it preying on you. You don't see it controlling you. So we just saw why it's so dangerous. Now, look at, let's look at the real root problem of sin. And this is where Jeremiah 2 just brings it to life. This is where God is so kind to just really be the, the greatest teacher ever. Uh, and he shows us this in Jeremiah 2. He says, consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you. That is a intervention conversation. It'd be like coming to somebody who's an alcoholic and, and literally trying to have an intervention with them, intervention with somebody who's, who's struggling with some kind of addiction. And you'd say, consider, just, just think about it real quick. Open your eyes. I, I can't force you to get healthy. I can't force you to go get detox. But can you just look at it with your own eyes? It's destroying you. It's destroying us. Just consider it. Open your eyes. Because I'm here to tell you, sin is not fatal. What he's saying is the denial of sin is fatal. He's like going, hey, hey, sin, not fatal. But when you deny it and you don't consider what it's doing to your life, that's when it becomes fatal. An infection is not fatal. And ignoring the infection and saying, I don't have the infection, that's when it spreads and it becomes fatal. And I'm here to tell you real quick, consider the way you're living right now. Consider it. Look at your priorities. Look at your proclivities. Look at the things that you've surrendered to the enemy. And I want to ask you today, is it working out for you? Is it bitter for you? Are you just fulfilled and living the best life? And I'm here to tell you, sin is stealing from you. Stop denying that sin is stealing from you. Stop minimizing it. Again, sin will not kill you, but denying the sin will kill you. I want to show you something that we've seen over, you know, century after century, person after person is they're, you know, they're asking, oh, what's the problem? Why is this breaking down? What's going on? And, and in Jeremiah, you see that um, God says, you think it's an outside problem, but it's an inside problem. Over and over again, mankind has always blamed outside instead of looking inside. And so even in your marriage, you're like, oh, it's my spouse. It's the, my friends. Can I tell you, it's you. It's you. Your spouse probably got stuff too, but you got stuff. And when you don't actually check, uh, start stewarding your, your spirit, my spirit, my responsibility, and you think it's everybody else, you'll never have breakthrough. You'll never have peace. And so he goes, hey, just real quick, Israelites, 
You think it's Babylon? Babylon's now in charge, by the way. Babylon had just taken over Assyria to defeat Nineveh in 607 BC. And he goes, you think it's Babylon? It's not Babylon. It's you. You're the problem. Babylon's not the problem. And so I'm here to tell you real quick, it's an inside problem, not an outside problem. And throughout history, we'll see it century after century. I'll show you. In the um, late 19th century, in the 1800s, philosophers, thinkers, government, read, read, these, read, read what they wrote in the end of the 19th century. Here's what they were saying. We're getting rid of religion, and we're going to get real rational, real practical. We're going to take a practical approach to brokenness. Soon there will be no poverty and no war in the 20th century. Well, we lived the 20th century, and there was world wars, poverty, deaths more than ever, uh, slavery, sex trafficking, everything. And their rational approach, it fell drastically short. There was a famous family in England in the late 1800s. They were called the Webb, Sidney and Beatrice Webb. They were two great people. They did a lot of good, but they got rid of Christianity. They, uh, they invested all their life into social welfare, the welfare society. They created that. The, basically, if we can um, create a social welfare um, society, we'll fix all the problems. And in 1890, Beatrice Webb put in her diary this word, I've staked all the essential goodness on human nature. I'm, I'm putting all my chips in the middle, all my money, all my being, that human nature is actually good, she writes in her diary in 1890. 35 years later in her diary, she reminded herself of what she had said in 1890. She cited what she said, I had staked all my essential goodness, all my being, all my, all my chips in the middle on human nature. Then she said, I realize now how permanent and evil people are. How evil the impulses are, how evil their instincts are, and that mere social machinery will never change them. She staked her whole life on the idea of social machinery would get rid of poverty and all the other violence. That's the late 1800s. Now let's look in the late 1900s. A man named Ernest Becker in 1974 wrote a book called The Structures of Evil. And he uh, basically wrote it uh, as a social scientist saying it was a social construct of the powerful people oppressing the not powerful people. And so he wrote this book on the Pulitzer Prize. And here's what he says uh, in his book in 1974. Um, the first book, Evil Called, Instruction of Evil. In that book, he says, the real problem in the world, the reason why we have poverty, the reason why we have war, the reason why we have violence is because the privileged are oppressing everybody else through their oppressive social structures. Therefore, he says, social science applied to government will deal with all this evil. Well, right after he died, uh, um, about tw uh, 25 years later, um, uh, 1994-ish time, 95, uh, he wrote a book called The Escape from Evil. And here's what he wrote in that book. Do you know what he says? He has changed his mind completely. I am now in this book looking at humanity full in the face for the first time. In my previous works, I had failed to see how truly vicious human behavior is. And then get this, this is the dilemma that I have been caught in, along with many others who have been trying to keep alive the Enlightenment tradition. We call it the woke movement now. It's called the Enlightenment tradition back then. The enemy keeps renaming it over and over again, and we keep falling prey to it. Anyways, we move on. Um, this enormous problem to see that humanity is so evil uh, and evil-causing now requires some third alternative beyond bureaucratic science of despair. I'm here to tell you, we've tried the political way. We've tried the secular way. I think maybe, just maybe, it's time to try the Jesus way, amen? Maybe, just maybe, we put all our chips in the middle with Jesus. So he shows the first problem is the denial of sin and thinking that the reason why mankind is so broken and so messed up is because we are socially not constructed correctly. No, no, it's because sin has not been dealt with. So he says the denial of sin is the first problem, but the second part, he says, it's the disposition of our, our sin. It's the disposition of our sin. Now, before I go into disposition, I've talked about mankind. I talked about humanity, but let's talk about you. Okay. So there, there, let's, let's, get, let's get personal. I want to ask you a couple of questions to see if you have Again, sin is not uh, going to kill you, but the denial of sin is going to kill you. 
Not dealing with your sin is going to kill you. So um, are you somebody who has um, or is living in denial of sin? So I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Here's some, some questions or some statements that would be symptoms of you living in the denial of sin. First one is this, is you say to yourself, I can handle it. I can handle sin. If you are saying that right now, you're in the denial of sin and you're, you're on the road of destruction. Second thing, maybe you say, it won't destroy me. I'm fine. Or how about this one? It's not that big of a deal. How about this? I can succeed with it. Not only succeed with it, I need to succeed with it. Some corners must be cut. How about this? You've, you just fight it. Everybody else struggles with it. Everybody else is struggling with it. How about this one? I'm okay with it, but nobody can see it. Now that is some mental calisthenics to deceive yourself. It's a fine to have it, but I don't want anybody to know I have it. And you're, that, that's how you've justified your head. Like, woo, you have done some, that is some deception catfishing your own self, okay? You're right, your own self. Like, it's all good. Oh, okay, thanks, good to know. Um, uh, and here's what happens when you start to deny sin and minimize sin and justify sin. You become a personal catfish yourself. And I'm here to tell you real quick, take the mask off. Take the mask off of the words you've been saying to yourself. Those things are stealing from you. You cannot handle them. You cannot manage them. You cannot hide them. When you bury sin, tr trust me, sin will unbury itself and bury you. So as we go on to the next one, the, the disposition of sin, uh, here's one way you can even see uh, why you've lost yourself in sin. And I, I love how the Lord says it in Jeremiah 2. So the disposition would just say the posture of sin, if I could put it that way. So the denial of sin and the disposition of sin. Uh, the heart of why you forsake God, the heart of why you sin, the reason why you break the rules, the essence of it all. Right here is what he says in scripture. No awe. He says in Jeremiah 2, you have lost your awe of me. So this is, the, this is the root of it. This is the essence of it. You lost your awe of me. Let me read you a couple of verses. Proverbs 28, 14. Happy is the one who fears always. Oxymoron, if you happy and fear in the same sentence, I'm gonna break that down for you in just a second. Psalm 130, verse four. Because you've forgiven my sins, I fear you. In our English language, in our culture, we only have one word for fear. And the fear that we have in our culture is a fear that grips us, a fear that seizes us, a fear that, that gives us anxiety, a fear that literally stops us in our tracks. But in the Bible, there's two types of fears. There's a bad fear that grips you, but then there's a good fear that frees you. And that word you'll see throughout the Hebrew and uh, in, in the Greek, you'll see the word reverence, awe, or fear used. They're all the same thing. And it's when you have the right person in the room, the right reverence of who's in the room, it frees you instead of grips you. Let me use an illustration about a bad fear that grips you. Um, anybody else in the room afraid of spiders? Raise your hand. Where are my arachnophobia people at? Okay, yeah, afraid of spiders. My wife is afraid of spiders, hates spiders. If a spider shows up in the house, everything else must stop. I could be interceding on behalf of the whole East Bay. And Rachel be like, stop, come downstairs right now. I'm praying, it doesn't matter. I don't care about souls being saved. We need a spider dead. She didn't say that, but you know what I'm saying, okay? We could be watching the greatest movie. It could be the climax of the movie. And Rachel would pause the movie. Stop, spider, kill it. I can't watch the movie. Everything must stop. I'm like, golly, like it's just a spider. But for Rachel, everything stops, including me. I had to stop. So when there's a spire in the house, I am now trained that I just look at it this way. Rachel calls a strong man. And know, puts the bat signal in the air, if you will. I need a hero. You know, like one of those moments, you know what I'm saying? So I'll be upstairs and she'll be like, Tyler, spider! And I'll be like, put my ass on my chest, put the cape down, come downstairs. Where's the spider at, girl? It's up there, it's right there, it's right there. I can't even reach it. I can, I'm 6'4". 6'5 with my shoes on. I'll reach it. I'll reach it. I'll reach it. Take my tissue. 
You know, Rachel, you know, she sits there, she watches, and I come up to that spider and squish it and kill it. I come back to her and I show her the dead spider. She's always like, is it dead? It is dead. And then I take it to the toilet and I flush it. And then the house is free again. I go upstairs with my cape and go intercede on behalf of the Bay Area. This is the Johnson household, okay? This is what we do. Now, that's, that's, that's what bad fear does. Uh, it grips you. Now, let's, let's look at, let's look at um, a spiritual picture of that. In December, and I'm going to share a trailer of this today. I think I'm going to preach a lot more on it next week. Uh, in December, is one of my worst bouts ever with depression and anxiety I've ever had in my whole life. I thought I was done with anxiety and depression at this level. So much so that I was in the kitchen, and I was just doing some dishes, and I got, like, seized up, pure fear, to where I was like... I, I won't be able to ever preach again. I felt so afraid to come and preach again. Started feeling like I, I got nothing left to preach. I started hearing all these fiery darts of lies over my life about you're done, no more authority. Uh, it was a fun five years. And then I started thinking about like, how in the world would I preach for 30 years? Like, how do you do that? And I started, because I always plan out series to give myself like, you know, a roadmap where I'm supposed to go. And, and, and so I was like, well, I got the series for five weeks. And I was like, but what do I do like five years from now? And I started trying to plan series up for the next 30 years. So I was like, at year 10, I was like, ah! Like, 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 I just absolutely just seized. I was like, I, I, if you would have asked me, like, Tyler, you have to preach right now. I couldn't, I could, I couldn't have left the house. And that, 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 that feeling, I've never, I've never, that kind of grip I haven't tasted in a very, very long time if I've ever tasted that level. So I go up to my room. And I'm so thankful I knew what to do at that moment. Put on worship music. Started reading my word and started bawling my head off and crying, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. And I feel like God gave me this picture. Because what I was dealing with at this moment, if I could just get a little transparent, is I was dealing with an idol that was destroying me. And my idol that always creeps up in my life is the idol of achievement. And the idol of achievement is, you did a good job. But here's what the, the, the idol of achievement does. You do a good job, it's not satisfied. You gotta do it again. Never is well done, good and faithful servant. It's always like, okay, whatever, keep it going. Be better. Impress me again, impress me again. And so the, the idols that you worship, they leave you empty and they leave you destroyed. And so I had the idol of achievement basically in my life and it's in the room with me. And I cannot destroy it, but it's destroying me. And guess what I do? I call on a strong man. I call on my savior. And I say, Jesus, this is destroying me. I have no idea what I'm gonna preach in January. I have no idea if it's gonna be powerful. I have no idea, I'm, I'm so afraid of it. God, would you destroy the achievement idol in my life so I can be free? And I feel like Jesus came into my life and literally walked into the achievement idol and goes, and came back and showed me the death of it. And he said, I'm gonna throw it away for you. Because when the, when the right person's in the room, when the right savior's in the room, it frees you. It destroys things that you can't destroy. It kills things that you cannot kill. The things that are in your life that are seizing you. If you would call on the strong man, if you would call on the savior, he would walk in and set you free of those things. It's an amazing thing when your disposition changes from looking at sin and going to looking at your savior. I will fix my eyes on my savior. I will fix my eyes. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We'll finish this quick little thought. I talked about the denial of sin, the disposition of sin. And last one is the desire of sin. And I think it's important for you to know where you're at too, and just your journey. So it shows the denial. It's kind of first step. Then the disposition is how you start to live. And the third part is it becomes your desire. And I, if I had more time, I'd read all of it to you. But in Jeremiah two, I, I already read the whole thing, but the picture God uses a lot is um, a lot of animals, uh, just try to show them because they're farmers. And he uses this quick little picture. He talks about 
um, a wild donkey and accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her, don't even, they don't even need to pursue this female who is in heat uh, to mate with her, the other one. At mating time, they will find her because she will run fast to them. And what he's saying is, is that when you have fully given yourself to sin, it is a fatal attraction. And a fatal attraction is basically that you will commit spiritual suicide, health suicide. You'll let your marriage die. You'll let life die. You'll let the most important things in your life die because all you can do is run to sin. And he's saying when sin is fully burned in your life, it's like your feet might as well have a magnet to sin. And he's saying, this is what's happened to you, Israel. Is you like have a, you, you sprint to it now. It doesn't have to crouch and hide at the door. It doesn't have to pounce on you more. You don't have to look at it. You, you wake up and you sprint to your sin every day. So what do you do? What's the solution? How do you free this? Because some of you right now, you're just in the denial part. How do I get free of this denial? Some of you, you have this part where you just sins in the room and it's owning you. But some of you, you are sprinting towards sin. And forgive me, I have to use this illustration. It comes from one of my favorite movies of all time, the movie, The Terminator. Anybody know The Terminators? Come on, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I actually got to meet uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, not really meet him, just worked out in the same gym at the hotel he was working at. <laughs> I'm gonna say meet. Uh, basically, whatever he lifted, I would lift after him. Um, so I was like, oh, are you touching that way? I, I, I didn't curl it, but I picked it up real quick and put it back down. I did the Arnold, I call it the Arnold. Anyways, okay, okay. Um, so uh, some of my favorite movies of all time. And, Basically, the whole theme of uh, Terminator is there's this woman named Sarah Connor, and she has this predator, the Terminator, pursuing her. And over and over again in the movie, people are underestimating the power of the Terminator, the evil of the Terminator. And so they're like, they tell her, she's like, ah, he's gonna try to kill me. They tell her, hey, sit in a public place. There's no way he would kill you in a public place. Well, they underestimated the evil of this predator. He'll go for you in a public place. So she almost gets killed there because she gets bad advice. And then she goes to a, a police station. There's 33 cops in there. Like, you're fine here. There's cops. Uh, people can protect you from this predator. And again, they, uh, they misunderstand and they devalue the power of this predator. And so the Terminator comes in there and starts destroying the whole place. But in the middle of this movie, as the predator of the Terminator is trying to seek her out and destroy her, there has been a protector sent to save her. And the protector comes to Sarah Connor and gets to her in time and simply says this, come with me if you want to live. Practice that for a long time. And I want you to catch this real quick. Sin has been a predator since the day you were born. Doesn't matter how old you were, the abuse you had as a young kid, sin does not care about age, number, or circumstance. It has been trying to pursue you and destroy you. But at the same time, there has been a great protector. He was sent to this earth, and his name is Jesus. And he says, follow me for abundant life. Say yes to me, and I can free you from that denial, from that disposition, and from that desire. I'm here to invite you today to say yes to your Jesus. Oh, so many of you. The offer is there every day. Every morning I say yes to that offer. Would you free me? Would you protect me? Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Protect my home, protect my mind. It's another day where I'll be tempted. It's another day that new arts will be fired. It's a new, another day where there'll be attacks. Another day where I'll feel spiritually weak. But God, I ask today, would you send your protector once again? And he's so kind to do it. I want to read you a verse. Hosea is a picture of God's people, again, trapped in captivity from sin and idol worship. And here's how the Lord says it in the book of Isaiah, how he's going to do it. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. 
God doesn't chase you down to shame you. He's like, he's saying like, I'm gonna go woo her again. I'm gonna go pursue her again. Again, it's the bride and groom, so bear with me, but he's gonna go pursue her again. I'll return her to her vineyards, to her, and transform the valley of trouble into the gateway of hope. He's saying, right now, my people are the valley of a core. They're the valley of trouble, barren, broken, and everything. I will pursue them. I will chase them down and say, come back. I will woo you back, and I will transform their life from the valley of trouble to the gateway of hope. And I'm here to tell you, God is chasing you down to take your valley of trouble and to make your life the gateway of hope. He goes on to say, to make you the gateway of hope, she will give herself to me there. I am yours and you are mine. You are my God and I am your son. You are my God and I am your follower. You are my God and I will be your ambassador. I am the one you freed. I will proclaim your name for the rest of my days. This is what's happening in this verse. As she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. It's the picture of salvation and then backsliding and coming back to the salvation moment. Some of you have backslid. Some of you have got apathetic. Some of you have wandered into sin. God is so kind. Today, somebody says, come home. Come home. I'm going to take the valley of trouble. I'm going to make it the gateway of hope. I'm going to restore you today. Will you bow your heads? No idea if it's your first time or second time in church. Don't you ever said yes to heaven, no to hell, yes to blessing, no curse. You never said yes to salvation. But I was very clear that to say yes to salvation, there must be a response. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. So if you want to say yes to Jesus today with every head bowed and eye closed, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in the count of three, but I want to ask a second question to this. You've been an apathetic, lukewarm Christian, and you want to come home today. You want to rededicate your life to Jesus today. I'm just going to ask you to, with every head bowed, eye closed, to raise your hand. That's you. Rededicate your life and want to say yes to Jesus. That's you on the count of three. Raise it up and raise it high to you. Not just to me, but to the Lord. Say, Lord, today I declare. Today I say yes to you. If that's you, one, two, three. Raise it up and raise it high. I see you and I see you and I see you. Hands all over the place. Come on now. God's doing a work in the house today. Come on. We've had so many hands raised. So many hands raised. I feel like today's a day that there's got to be a response. Second question I have is for the people in the house. You love the Lord. You're following the Lord. But there's a sin that you want to be dealt with this season. You want destroyed this season. And you want to say, God, would you free me of this sin this season? I no longer want to go around the same cul-de-sac with this sin over and over again. God, would you, would you help me, Jesus? The Bible is very clear. When we confess our sins to one another and we are prayed for, that's when we're healed. Well, if you would be brave enough today to not be religious, but to bring your weakness and have your pastor pray for you, if you want to be freed from some sin today, people raise their hands. I raised my hand today. I got things I need to get free from. Come on now. If that's you, you want to be freed from some, uh, some, some kind of sin, raise your hand. I want to pray for you real quick. Raise your hand up. Raise it high. God, I pray for every hand that is raised. Every hand that is raised. I come against bondage. I come against the mindset of no victory. God, this is the year for victory. God, I pray right now for freedom. Got a new authority over whatever that sin is. A new mastery. The sin that mastered them will now be mastered by them. It's going to get its eviction notice today, God. It's going to have a new rhythm today. That the, the, the off-ramp is being taken today. That death no longer has its sting today. God, we say yes to you. Yes to holiness. Yes to being set apart. God, we love you. We love you. Everybody said? Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.